Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Thank you so much for your good singing today. It's just a joy to be able to worship the Lord with you in that way. Okay, so this is not a trick question, I promise you. But I just want to ask you this. How do you know when somebody loves you? How do you know when somebody loves you? Okay, you thinking of an answer? You've got an answer in your, your mind and your heart? Okay, that's good. You can just hold it to yourself. You don't have to tell it out loud right now. But uh, some of you are thinking, well, you know, they tell me they love me. And I know they love me because they say so. But some of you are thinking, ah, that wouldn't work for me because you can say one thing and do something totally different. You can say it and not really mean it. So maybe the words aren't valuable to you. Others of you say, well, you know what? When they spend time with me, I know they really care about me because I know they're listening to me, they're engaged with me, they're focused on me, and I know they really love me when they spend time with me. Still others are saying, well, they give me gifts. They give me things that I need, things that I want. They, they surprise me and they, they give these gifts and I know they love me. And others have said, well, you know, when they just are close by me, they touch me, they put their arm around me or they're with me, they're, they're present with me, I know then that they love me. And others of you are thinking, no, I know who really loves me. It's whenever they come to the rescue. <laughs> I'm in a mess, I'm a hot mess and I need somebody's help and they come help me through thick or thin. And some of you have people like that in your life, that you know, you're working on the yard and you've got some big project and it's just overwhelming, and a neighbor comes over and says, I've got some tools, here, we'll knock this out in no time, let me help you. Others, you know, maybe your neighbors instead like to sit and watch and critique, but you know, there's the kind that come and actually help you. Others of you, maybe it's one of your kids or maybe it's your spouse or maybe it's a friend or a father or mother or somebody says, come, I'll come help you. Maybe you've gone through surgery or you're very, very sick and a friend says, here, let me bring dinner and just help you. Or I can take you to the doctor. Or here, let me help you somehow. They come to the rescue. They're able to encourage you. They're able to be with you. And that's such a powerful display of love. You know what? God says he wants to come be with us. And he tells us that he loves us. And he gives us gifts. And he does all these things to show show us that he loves us. But you know what really, to me, is the rock-bottom proof the absolutely ironclad, foolproof evidence that God truly loves you and me? is that he came to the rescue when we were in such a mess. That he loved us even when we were at our worst. That he was willing to come and rescue us. The passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at today talks about what God's love is like. And this is the proof of God's love that he came to the rescue. So I want to invite you to take your Bible, please, and let's, let's open them up. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and this is on page, if you're using one of the Bibles from church, it's on page 942, 942, but Romans chapter 5. Now to set the, set the scene, set the stage for what we're talking about today, the, the context of this discussion this morning is based on a series of messages that we're doing during this time of Lent and, and Easter and after Easter. We're talking about God's love. 
And God's love is one of those things that we all know about. I mean, it's, they, they kind of made a joke about it today during worship time because we sang a song that had the words, Jesus loves me. And we all sang that if you went to Sunday school as a kid and you, know, you heard that at Vacation Bible School or other times in your youth. And you've heard that song. You know that, oh, Jesus loves me. Of course he loves me. And we say, I know all about that. And it's easy to look at God's love and say, I've got this figured out. He loves me. I know this. The Bible tells me so. But the truth is, is that like any relationship, when we talk about love, there's something we see on the surface, but then there's something deep down underneath that's very complex and rich. Something that's very satisfying the deeper you go into it. And so it's like, you know, when you're dating and you're excited to be with that guy or girl and there you are and you just enjoy their presence so much and you dress up, put on a little cologne, you know, you, you get the car cleaned up, you do that kind of stuff because you want to make a good impression and you're very, very excited about it. And then you, you maybe get engaged and you get married and those first couple years of marriage are exciting and fun and, and then there's lots of distractions and then there's all kinds of other things and it's easy at those moments to say, oh, the, the love has died, I don't love them anymore, or... Or you can have God's help and be committed to your marriage and you learn to make it work no matter how long you've been married, no matter what distractions come, and the marriage actually gets richer, fuller, deeper because the love grows stronger. And it's bigger than just infatuation. And there's a, there's a commitment and a depth to, us, to it that comes the longer you stay in it and the more you love the other and they love you. Well, you see that in human relationships. Your love is richer and fuller as time goes on. It's that way in our relationship with God. He loves us, and rather than thinking, oh, I know all about it, instead we need to say, well, maybe there's more to it than I realized. And part of that today is just looking at this whole idea of that no matter how bad our mess was, God was willing to come to the rescue. That's how much he loved us. God was willing to come to the rescue in spite of the terrible mess we've made of our lives. No matter uh, how bad we are, God loved us at our worst and he came to the rescue. And Romans chapter five, verses one through 11 tell us about that. So let's, let's read God's word together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we are also rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. Now, as we read this, as we're reading this, we see a lot of very complex theological concepts. We hear the word justification. We hear about reconciliation. We see about, we have to discuss Christ's death. And all of this, it, it seems very rich and full and complex, but I want you to see that underneath it all, the reason why God is providing this forgiveness and acceptance, why he's welcoming us into his family, why he's rescuing us in spite of how bad we are and how undeserving we are, it's all driven by the fact that he loves us. Everything that that supports the foundation that all this is talking about here in verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5 is the fact that God loves us. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here, he's kind of like summarizing everything he's about to say. We have this changed relationship. We've gone from being enemies of God, sinners and separated from God, ungodly before God, alienated from God, and instead of being his enemies and separated from him, we have now been reconciled to him. We've been justified. That word justify, he explains in chapters 3 and 4. He talks a lot about it. He just simply says, you've been forgiven and accepted by God. You've been reconciled to him. And now you're no longer held accountable for your sins. You're no longer guilty in his sight. You're no longer ashamed in his sight. You've been forgiven and cleansed and restored into a new relationship with God. God declares it to be so. Why? Because of what Christ did for you when he died on the cross. That's unpacked and and really laid all out on the table, making it very clear that God did this through Jesus in chapters 3 and chapter 4 of Romans. You can go and discover it and explore it this week on your own. Paul summarizes that here in verse 1 of chapter 5. And as a result of being justified by faith, now we have peace with God. We're no longer hostile to God. We're no longer enemies of God and alienated from Him. Instead, we experience His peace. Now, when you think about peace, it would be easy to say, well, you know, it gives me a warm feeling of contentment in my heart and I'm at peace. I'm relaxed. I'm not anxious and upset anymore. It's that, but it's bigger than that. Because he's talking about an end to hostilities. An end of the struggle and strife that divides people from God. Cuts us off from him. There's, there's, there's been a cessation of the warfare between us and God. And you're thinking, war? I wasn't at war, God. We'll, we'll look at a few verses in a few minutes that kind of show that we are. But here he's making it very clear that we now have peace with God. Our Jewish friends call this word peace. They use the word shalom from Hebrew, shalom. And that's not just a a greeting to somebody. It's that, but it's bigger. It's, It's saying that you're now at this state of being content and relaxed, calm and accepted. There's no more separation, no more tension, no more fighting. There's actually a unity and harmony and wholeness and completeness has come. Everything has been put back into balance and been restored. And it's because of what Christ did. That's what we're talking about. That we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the way that we can personally experience 
is found in the middle of the verse. That this peace can become our own possession is found in the middle of verse 1 where it says we have this by faith. That we trust Christ. That we're relying on Him. That we're asking Him and depending on Him to forgive us and make us acceptable to God. That's from our end what we're responsible to do. To believe in Him. To rely on Him. To depend on Him to forgive us and make us acceptable with God. If you do that, you have peace with God. And that's what he's talking about here. This is your experience. This is your possession right now. If you've embraced him and you're trusting in him and you're relying on him, then you have this peace with God right now. What does that mean, though? How does that look in daily experience? How does this shalom, this peace, look, this new relationship with God? What does it look like in our daily lives? And that's what we're going to see in the next 10 verses as he unpacks it, starting in verse 2. The first thing I want you to see is that God has come to the rescue. He saw that we were making a mess of our lives and instead of wasting our lives and ruining our lives by our own sinful choices and our own selfish decisions, God has rescued us so we don't waste our lives anymore. Look what he says in verse two. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He describes the Christian life as being, it's it's like stepping into a new house, a brand new house that's been custom built for you. And everything that you could imagine that you would want that home to have, it's been provided for you. And the contractor hands you the keys, shakes your hand, and says, welcome to your new home. And that's what grace is. It's God's home, so to speak. And he's saying, I'm inviting you. You've been given the key to the door. You can open the door and you can step into this brand new house of the grace of God. It's your new home. You have this new relationship with him. And it's described as grace. Now again, grace is one of those words. It's a short little word. We say it very frequently, but it's hard to remember everything that's involved in it. Somebody said that the word grace was an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Remember that? Maybe you heard that as a kid. And that's actually a very clever and I think relatively accurate way to describe the grace of God. All we're trying to say is it's all the blessings and all the resources and all the things that God does to favor you, help you, bless you, that's his grace. It's a gift. It's freely given, no strings attached. All of God's resources, an old preacher said to me one time, it's God's divine operating assets given to you. Everything that you need to do the work that God has called you to do, God has provided that through Christ. That's grace. And so you can unpack that and think about what it means. It's bigger than just, oh, you know, we've got clean air to breathe and good food to eat and a nice world to live in with beautiful flowers that are blooming this time of year and, you know, soft, cuddly animals and things like that. It's bigger than that kind of stuff that we all easily take for granted. It's the fact that God hears us when we pray and that he's given us his word that tells us his will. And the Holy Spirit lives inside our hearts to help us understand God's word. And that God forgives us when we sin and he strengthens us when we're weak and he helps us when we fall. And he's preparing a home for us in heaven. He talks about that, that we have this hope, this confidence. All of this is the grace of God. All of this are the divine operating assets that God has made available to us to be able to live in this world in a generous way 
an abounding way, a position of abundance because of what God has already done for us. So often you and I think that we have scarcity. We don't have enough. And God is saying, I've poured out my grace on you through Jesus. You have more than enough. You can do exceedingly abundantly above everything that you ever thought of or dreamed of because of what God has given to you in Jesus. It's all there. The rest of the Bible's telling you about what that grace is. <laughs> That's why we study it, to learn about the grace of God. So he says, we now stand in this grace. It's like this brand new home that we live in and operate out of. We've, ob- we've obtained it by faith, by trusting in Christ and relying on him. We now stand here. It's not that we have to get into it. We're already in it because we've already trusted Christ. And it leads us to rejoice. It leads us to celebrate. And that word rejoices has this concept of, of, of not just feeling happy about something, but actually boasting about it. And you know what? It's, it's like you go through the entire football season and your team is in the playoff and they finally win the Super Bowl and you feel like boasting about it. And other people are sad and crying the blues, but you're boasting, you're happy because they won. The people of that city, that town, the fans of that team, they're celebrating. It could be the same thing when your driver wins, <laughs> when your player sinks that final putt and wins the Masters. The same thing can happen when you bag that buck that you've been stalking all hunting season. Or when you, you know, finish the last stitch of that quilt or you finally get that kid to graduate from college and maybe you really celebrate when you pay that last debt off with that college bill. We celebrate these kinds of things, these kinds of achievements and we even boast, hey, by the way, I paid my house off this year. By the way, we finally paid that college bill off. By the way, my team won. That's boasting. That's celebrating. We boast and celebrate about something that's infinitely better. The grace of God that's available to us through Christ that he would love us and welcome us into his family and make us his children in spite of the mess we're in. That he loved us at our worst and he came to the rescue and he's given us a hope of heaven, the glory of God. But this isn't just something about the future, it's about today. Because notice verse three, he says, not only that, Not only do we have this hope for tomorrow, but we have hope for today as well. Because look, not only that, but we rejoice, same word, boasting, celebrating, cheering, celebrating this, we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait a minute, Paul. (laughs) Uh, Did you have your cup of coffee this morning? Life really that bad? Why would I rejoice in suffering? Why would I rejoice when things are hard? when he left me, when she hurt me, when I'm tempted, when I'm persecuted, when I'm sick, when I'm poor, when I'm hurting. Why would I celebrate these kinds of sufferings? Why would I boast about that? Well, the boasting is not in the hardship as much as it is that that hardship gives me an opportunity to trust God and grow in my endurance. These hardships can actually make me a stronger person if I surrender to God in the midst of them. I can bear up under my burdens and press on. That's the idea of endurance. And that endurance, if I keep pressing on even through very difficult, painful things, the grief and anxiety and hurt that I go through in life, if I just keep trusting the Lord and keep pressing on as I do that, even when other people tell me not to, I grow in my character. God looks at my character 
And he says, you know what? That's exactly what I'm asking you to do. Look at that. You're a person that's doing what I've called you to do. You're just like my son, Jesus. Maybe nobody else will notice it, but God notices it. He sees your tears. He knows your broken heart. He knows how hard it is, but he sees you pressing on, trusting him in spite of that. And he says, I love that in you, and I'm proud of you. That approved character. The approved character leads to hope, a confidence that God's in control and that he's working it all out in spite of the difficulties that I'm going through. And that hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, this is the bottom line. This is why even when we go through very difficult portions of our lives, even though our life can be very painful and very discouraging, God is with us. He's given us His Holy Spirit. His own presence is here in our lives. It's what he did to come to the rescue. You don't have to waste your life when you're going through hardship and trouble. You don't have to give in to greed or anxiety. You don't have to give in to depression or fear. You don't have to give in to lust. You don't have to give in to these things because the Spirit of God has come. God's own presence. And he's living inside of you. And it gets even better than that. Because he says when the Spirit of God comes... He pours out God's love in you. Not just sprinkle you with God's love. You know, here's a little bit flick flick for you. No, here are buckets of God's love. Oh, you want some more? Here's some more. You still not ready? Okay, here's some more. Just pouring out that love in abundance so that you can experience it in its fullness. The Spirit of God has come to show us the love of God, to help us experience the love of God no matter how difficult and painful our circumstances are, even if we feel like we're doing it all alone, even if it seems like God is far away, the Spirit of God there is to remind us and help us experience the love of God in all its fullness. And He will do that no matter how difficult the suffering is that we go through. This is what God has done to rescue us from wasting our lives when we go through painful times. He's given us a hope to keep pressing on toward, but in the midst of it all, he sustains us in an abundant way with his love and his grace so that we know we're not alone in our grief, we're not alone in our trials, we're not alone in our hurts, we're not alone when we're anxious, we're not alone when we're struggling to change to grow, to mend and heal. We're not alone as we're serving him, even though it seems so dark and hard. We're not alone because the Spirit is there to pour out God's love in our hearts. You don't have to waste the hurts that you're going through in life because God's there sustaining you. Now the reason that all of this can take place, that God pours out his love in our hearts, that God gives us the Holy Spirit, that God is able to transform even these painful lives that we're going through is because of what we read in verses 6 through 11. In this second paragraph, Paul, as the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write, he explains that this is all possible because God loved us even at our worst. 
He came to the rescue, not just to help us in our day-to-day affairs, but to change the whole arc of our lives. The whole trajectory of our lives is transformed because of what Christ has done for us to rescue us. And so let's unpack this because he not only saves us from wasting our lives, he saves us from certain judgment. I mean, this is kind of heavy. It's very hard to hear, but it's the truth that every one of us deserves God's judgment. That's the consequence of the mess we're in that we've created for ourselves. Look what he says in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. I got to tell you, this paragraph is, is a very humbling set of scripture to read because he's talking about each and every one of us here talking about me and he's talking about you and it's not at all flattering you know this is not a good job commendation this is not some kind of report that gives approval to you for what you've done no it's not that it's actually telling us how bad we are and just when you think okay I'm ungodly it gets even worse because it says we're a sinner and we think okay I'm willing to accept that I'm a sinner but then he says no you're even worse than that you're God's enemy it just keeps getting worse the verdict upon our lives And yet, in spite of all that, the mess that we've created, us, humanity, at its worst, God loves us. God has come to the rescue so that we don't have to have the consequences and destiny that we deserve because of our sinful rebellion. God has rescued us from that. So he says, we're still weak. Now, this word weak just simply means to be helpless or powerless. And he's telling us here that we can't save ourselves. Now, a lot of us go through life and we don't like asking for help. You know, I got this. I can handle this. I don't want to be a burden. I, I, I don't want to look like I'm incomplete. I don't want to look like that I can't handle it. I visited some friends yesterday and they have a beautiful plaque in one of their rooms. And it just, at the center of the plaque, I thought was the most precious thing. It just said, today's a new day. Ask for help. It's one of the, a lot of other things to do, but right in the middle, ask for help. And I thought, I need to do that is just start asking for help instead of thinking that I've got this handled because I don't. And I need to recognize that I'm not being a burden to others, but I need to ask for help. If you take anything away from verses 6 through 11, it's this. You need help. God wants to give help. Ask for it. He won't turn you away because He loves you. He wants to come to the rescue. So he says, when we're weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, this is, this is the only way he could rescue us. It, was, it involved a sacrifice, an exchange of lives, us for Christ, Christ for us. He had to exchange his life for ours so that we could be forgiven and accepted by God. And, and Paul explains this even further. Christ died for us. He died for us who are ungodly. Ungodliness is just simply the idea of being, you know, anti-God. To be different than God, opposite God. To not like, be like God at all, like, like oil and water don't mix. And just to recognize that and, and understand that, that, that even though God created us, even though he made us in our image, because of our sinful choices and our sinful rebellion, we're not at all like God. We're opposite him. We're ungodly. But Christ died for us to rescue us. 
How unusual this is. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. This is human experience. Very seldom will someone say, you know what, I know you're doomed to die. I'm willing to take your place. It's like going to the penitentiary and saying to the guy on death row who's been condemned and lost all of his appeals. He's an axe murderer, rapist, child molester, the worst person you could possibly imagine. And going to them and saying, you know what, I'm willing to take your place and and, uh, take that lethal injection for you. I'm willing to be electrocuted for you. I'm willing to go to the gas chamber for you. I'm willing to die for you. You can go free. First off, I don't know that the state would let you do that. And I don't know that anybody else in society would let you do that. I know it would be really hard to muster up the courage to go do that myself. But that's the picture here. Christ died for the ungodly. The people that are anti-God... He died for them. You say, I'm not anti-God. I don't need Jesus to die for me then. No, (laughs) the truth is every human is anti-God. All of us are on death row. We're all facing God's judgment. Scarcely will somebody die for a righteous person. Maybe, he says in verse 7, perhaps someone would die for a good person. Maybe they would dare to die for that one. But look at verse 8. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A couple really important things are said in that verse. First off, it says that the motivation for everything that's going on here to rescue us is purely and simply the love of God for you and me. This is why he did it. It's not that he owes us anything. It's not that we deserve it in any way. But God graciously and mercifully, because he loves people, the ungodly people, Christ died for them. He died as their substitute. He died in their place so they could be reconciled to God. And not only that, it says that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. See, if you're struggling with the idea of, I'm not so sure I'm ungodly, that I'm really that anti-God like this verse says I am, well, you know, the evidence of being anti-God is doing things that are sinful things that are disobedient to God. God has an expectation for how to live our lives. He has like a boundary line. I want you to stay behind this boundary line, but we cross over it all the time. It's like he has a big bullseye that he wants us to shoot at. You know, this is how I expect you to treat your spouse. This is how I expect you to honor your boss and and, uh, treat your customers. And this is how I expect you to treat your neighbor and do that. And we keep missing the target all over the place. We fall short of what he expects in our thoughts, our words, or deeds. We hurt ourselves, we hurt other people, we offend God. We're sinners. And that's proof that we're ungodly. And that's why Christ had to die for us. Because we do sinful acts. We break God's law. We deserve to be punished. But look, it gets even more rich and fuller here as he explains this. Christ showed God's love. He proved it to us by dying for us. In verse 9 he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, since we've been declared right, found forgiveness, found acceptance with him, since we've been justified by his blood, that's another way of saying his death. Death is a sacrifice. See, 
in the Old Testament of the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures that describe the different sacrifices that had to be offered for people to be forgiven and reconciled by God. And I need to tell you, those sacrifices were bloody, gory, and gruesome. It's really kind of sickening because here would be an innocent lamb, cuddly little furry lamb, and they'd have to have the throat slit and the blood drained out and then the carcass burned on the altar. How's that for a church service? But that's what they had to do. You say, how cruel and barbaric, how ugly and grotesque, but that's how awful, how ugly and grotesque and horrific our sin is. How much our sin needs to be atoned for requires something so violent, so, so grotesque and so barbaric. It, that's how bad our sin is. We can't just God forgive it, not if there's justice. Can't just God turn his face from it, not if there's justice. Not if there's going to be any change in our lives so that we actually would become better people. No, there has to be a sacrifice. And so it talks about through his blood. And while Christ didn't have his throat slit on the cross, he certainly was nailed there. He had been whipped there. He was wearing the crown of thorns and that spear was rammed in his side. It was a very bloody death. He was dying as a sacrifice for me and you so we could be reconciled to God. So he says very simply in verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified, declared right and forgiven by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We don't have to, we don't have to face God's judgment in the future. We don't have to go to hell. <laughs> Next time somebody tells you to do that, you just say, I can't, sorry. I trusted Jesus. Can't, no way, no how. I don't have to go there. You don't either. How about that? Isn't that cool? Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He's saying almost the exact same thing as verse 9. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we be, shall we be saved by his life. You see, in verse 10, he pulls it out even further and he says, okay, you've struggled with this idea that you're ungodly and you've struggled with this idea that you're a sinner, but I just want you to really understand how God views you. This is why you need to be rescued. This is why your situation is so dire, so dangerous and deadly. You're God's enemy. What? When have I ever been an enemy of God? I love God. I go to church. I do these things. But this passage says every single human being is ungodly. We're anti-God. And this passage says that every one of us shows that ungodliness by being sinful and breaking his laws, hurting ourselves and hurting other people. And because of that, we're his enemies. We're hostile to him. He's at war with us. And this passage is saying that Christ died for his enemies. You know, a few weeks we'll celebrate Memorial Day. Very special time for us as Americans where we remember the men and women who sacrificed their lives for our freedom, for our country and its values. And we honor them, we respect them, we remember it's Memorial Day. And well we should. They deserve every praise that we could possibly give for the supreme sacrifice that they've made. But when you think about the death of Jesus, it was not patriotic. Jesus didn't die for his country. He didn't die for his friends. 
He died for his enemies. He died for the people that didn't love him, didn't obey him, didn't trust him, didn't want him. He died for them. That's how deep his love is for you. That he would love you and die for you that way. God loved you at your worst. He loved you by coming to the rescue to save you out of the mess you've made of your life and the mess I've made of my life. I'm ungodly. I'm a sinner. I'm an enemy. But so is every other human being who is living and has ever lived and will live. We are lost. And we need somebody to come to the rescue. And that somebody is Jesus. He shows us how much God loves us by coming to the rescue. And Paul says one more time, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You don't have to be God's enemy anymore. You can be at peace. You don't have to be far away from God. You can come home. You don't have to be poor and without God. You have the grace of God. You're fully enfranchised. You're fully endowed with all the resources of God available to you. You don't have to face God's judgment. Jesus was judged for you on the cross. So now you can be forgiven and accepted by God and reconciled to Him. And why did all this happen? It's because God loves you so much. He loves you even when you were at your worst. He came to the rescue to save you. Well, what's this mean? There's a couple things that this means. This certainly means that if you're a Christian, if you're a person that follows Jesus and loves Jesus, this isn't just for people that don't know Jesus yet, okay? It is that, but it's more than that. This is for you and me today. Because some of us go through life saying, boy, I really failed. I blew it. I gave into that temptation again. I did something. I know I lost my temper. I was so bad. I'm not even sure God loves me anymore. Some of you have had that experience where you've done something you know was wrong and you feel such a weight of conviction and a weight of guilt and a weight of shame that you really question, has God stopped loving you? Have you lost your salvation somehow? And what this is saying is that there's nothing you could do to make God stop loving you. And because Christ gave his life for you and because he has died for you to show you the love of God, the door is now open to go stand in that grace and receive the forgiveness that you need. And to know that yes, you did fail, and yes, it was terrible, but Jesus died for that. So now you can be forgiven, and if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful, He is just, it's right for Him to do. He will cleanse us and forgive us from all unrighteousness. It's all because of what Jesus did to show you the love of God and dying on the cross. So now, this is the reason why you and I can have a relationship with God every day and know that we are secure in His love because He loved us at our worst. He certainly will love you when you're good. He'll love you when you're nice. He'll love you when you're in church. He'll love you wherever you are. He will always love you because He's loved you at your worst. If you're not a Christian, 
And there's some here who have never trusted Christ. You're a churchgoer, you're religious, you're a good citizen. All these things are wonderful, but you've never made that commitment and you've never said, Jesus, I need to be saved. Maybe you've never seen yourself the way this passage describes. You've never thought of yourself as being ungodly. I'm respectable. Maybe you never saw yourself as a sinner. Sinner, those are just those bad people down at the rescue mission or Skid Row or someplace like that. Not me. I'm a nice guy, nice girl. But this verse says we're all sinners and fall short of God's glory. Maybe you've never seen yourself as an enemy of God. Well, the truth is, this is where you are. And the first order of business is to, to define reality. This is where we are. And this is our sad state, our sorry plight. If you come to Christ, He forgives and cleanses and restores and gives you reconciliation. You don't have to be God's enemy anymore. Trust in Christ. Rely on Him. Call out to Him. Ask Him to save you, and He will. I think this passage is saying one more thing. This is important. This affects us as a body of believers and how we relate to the people of our world. There are a lot of cultural wars going on, people that are for abortion, people who are against people who are against gay rights and people who are for them. There are people that are arguing about this and arguing about that and we have these fault lines along the political parties and things like that and other cultural things that we argue and debate about and it's easy to look at other people and say if they don't agree with me, if they don't like what I'm saying, then they're bad. I hope they go to hell. You can say that and think that. But this passage reminds me that if God was willing to love me and I was his enemy, if God is willing to love you and we were his enemies, then who are we to not love our enemies? Jesus said, if someone is your enemy, you're supposed to bless them. You're supposed to do good to them. You're supposed to be kind to them. You might have trouble trusting them. You might not like to agree with them but you can still love them. Love your enemies. You, you can reach out to them and seek to build bridges of common ground. Just because they're a different political persuasion or they voted for somebody different or they like something better than what you like. If Jesus is willing to forgive us and love us even though we were his enemies, then we of all people can show that kind of love, that generous forgiving, that generous love, we can show that to others. And that can be the hallmark of our lives. The world around us, here in Littlestown, Hanover, Carroll County, Adams County, York County, the, the people around us say the church doesn't love us because they're always condemning us. And this is one way that we can show that, no, we really do love you, and God loves you too, because we'll love you in return. Even if you don't love us, we will love you. Because that's exactly what Christ did for us. And we can do that because he did love us that way. We're no longer at odds with him. We don't have to be at odds with any of the people in our community. Maybe your political view, your cultural view, maybe it's right. Maybe it's biblical. But what good is it if you don't love them? You're just making a bunch of noise. But thankfully, Christ made his love so clear beyond a shadow of a doubt when he died for you and he died for me.
Don't wait for the feeling. Rest on the facts. The fact is Christ loves you and he died for you. Will you give your life to him and trust him? Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being in your presence today. Thank you for the opportunity to read your word and study it together. And thank you for the reminder of how great, how deep your love is for us. Thank you for loving us when we least deserved it. Thank you for dying for us, Jesus, when we were your enemies. Thank you for wanting us to be reconciled to you. That you would do that for us. Thank you. I pray that, Father, you would help us all here today just to marvel and celebrate and boast in your love. May we do that for your honor and glory. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before we sing our closing song, let me just say this to you. Let me make, a, make an offer to you. The offer is just simply this. Maybe what we've talked about today is confusing. Maybe you've got some questions. Maybe you don't agree with it. That's okay. But I'll be up front here and I would be very happy. I would be very happy to talk with you and pray with you so that you could experience God's love in a rich and full way in your life as well. Maybe it's trusting Christ. Maybe it's an issue that's plaguing you and troubling you and you want somebody to pray with you. And I would be very glad to do that. But God bless you. I hope you have a great week. And just remember, God loves you so much. He truly does. Christ died for you.